0: This is The Balanced Dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma. Managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin.
1: And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners. Telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And... Can you have it all
0: and all at the same time? Our guest is Meg Koifer. And folks in the Larchmont-Memarinet community or even broader to Westchester County, New York, know Meg as a founder and president of the STEM Alliance, a 501c3 nonprofit. And we're certainly going to hear about that. But others, family and personal friends, may think of her as the mother of five children and or a former teacher. Well, Meg brings it all together with how she organically evolved to be an educator, community organizer, and fundraiser. And like so many of our guests, her story is rooted in her upbringing. Meg, welcome to The Balanced Dilemma.
2: Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a bit about your background? So I was raised in Providence, Rhode Island. I myself am the youngest of six. And I had a very strong mother figure. My mom was uh, attended Brown University and was uh, the only woman in her class who graduated with a science degree in biology. And she went on to work as the biologist on um, Rhode Island's first open heart surgery. And so my passion for science, technology, engineering, and math actually came very early in my life um, shared through my mom who then also in the 80s was one of the first people to own a personal computer. Um, she uh raised her six children then ended up working for my father's insurance and real estate agency but she could not get rid of that passion for STEM um, that came with her naturally so I was raised uh, first with always uh, technology in her house so she had a personal computer before anybody else did it was the size of a closet and uh, she programmed it herself late into the evening taught herself the whole programming language but she was also passionate about languages and part of that came in our upbringing in that as she had a large home in this Rambam environment of six kids as the kids started rolling out of the house she actually took in um, exchange students refugees and other people from countries around the world and so I had a household where it was a revolving door I literally would come home and new people would be there
1: goodness you know we, we've asked this before did you feel
2: that those were big uh, shoes to fill I don't, I don't know if I've heard a role model like that before uh Yes, I would say my mom was a giant to me. I lost her when I was only 23. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say that uh, it was both – it was not just her intellectual. She, she helped so many people because we had so many exchange students and other folks in the home. She took calculus about six or seven times helping another young person, another young person who was living in her home mm-hmm. – uh, yes, I have always wondered how she managed both the household itself and this incredible vibrance and intellectualism.
0: And did she push you in any particular direction?
2: No, she defended me um, actually. So when I graduated from college, I also went to Brown University. Um, I'm one of, I'm a third generation female graduate from my family of Brown University so a long line of of strong women in my family and when I graduated my father thought great I have someone to work in my insurance agency and I said I'm moving to Washington D.C. to work in the public schools there I'm going to look for a job and he said that's ridiculous I paid for your degree you're going to work for me and my mom sat him down at the table and said at Bishop we did not have six children so you could tell them what they're going to do she's got to do what she's got to do
0: Did she push you towards STEM or computers or
2: science or medicine? No, she inspired me towards those things. Simply her exuberance for it was, it was infectious. And so, no, there was never a pushing.
1: And with all of these uh, competing needs in your household, was your mom a stay-at-home mom? Was she
2: working outside the house? How did that aspect so when we were younger, she truly was caring for us. And she, my my father's uh, small insurance and real estate um, business, which he did mostly from home, he had an office, but he did it mostly from the house and his workers were in the office. So he was like the original, I know it's like the original environment that we're all in now. Uh, so then over time, as she became more available, she did more of the logistical management. And he would, he would today admit that he could not have created anything he created without the hand that she played, but it just advanced over time as her time became more available
0: did she ever express to you frustration or disappointment that she couldn't
2: or didn't continue in her chosen field so i would say she did not verbalize it but it came out other ways and so she was a heavy smoker which is what took her life and she was an alcoholic and so i deeply believe that that was because she uh was locked into a life that wasn't always fulfilling for her
1: and after your mom passed, I don't know, the birth order with uh, the kids in the house, did your dad have to step in and play
2: more of a, a mother figure? How did that work? No, at that stage, since I'm the youngest, most of the kids, all of the kids were out of the house. I was 23. Uh, so that was not a responsibility or a burden. I was very blessed to care for her in her last days because I was a teacher. Uh, she passed, um, she had two summers when she was sick and I cared for her at her bedside both of those summers and that was a, a real privilege so you had initially planned to be a doctor i did what happened what happened uh yeah so let's say that um calculus and um Uh, you know, chem or organic chemistry did not bode well for me. And by the way, because I was from Providence and went to school at Brown University, I would go to my mom also. Um, But uh, I did not have that robust intelligence and it was okay. Like, I realized that I was trying to memorize formulas that people next to me were generating because they understood them. And you can't function in a a pre-med environment in that way. Maybe I didn't get the support I needed as a woman. Maybe I did have the robust intelligence. But the truth is, what What I was passionate about was the teaching of it, and that is when I really dovetailed and also a passion for languages, which um, became much more clear to me during my college years. So you actually have degrees from both Brown and Columbia. Do you feel that for what you were doing or what you were going to accomplish, that was necessary? My degrees were critical in terms of changing how I think, and I am incredibly grateful for the mentors that I had. In particular, I studied under a very strong educational reformer in the 80s known as Edward Ted Sizer, and – he changed my thinking around education. He was a progressive educator who tried to bring those tools through something called the essential school movement. But here's the bottom line that remains true today, which is why schools have to be opened up to all. It's it's not just what you learn from the educators, it's what you learn from your peers. And the way that we do college education in America is about that campus environment. I used to tell people I learned as much in the ratty, which was the dining hall, around that table and the debates that happened with my peers as anywhere else. Those peers became my network and that whole concept of this network that needs to be available to all that's how i found job opportunities and work opportunities so some
1: of the discussions that are going on right now about uh how we can open that platform to more people um is do you i've heard it said that that networking uh, plus that you get from having gone to a college campus and having met these kids that's what you are missing when you don't get to be part of that more than the education and everything
2: else do you do you agree with that? Has that been your experience? I deeply agree with that. I also deeply agree with the um the what people posit when they say that um they're you know well we just we can't find those people of color to come to these universities who have those skills um, if we put as much money into finding those people as we put into finding the football team we would have schools filled that are diverse at all levels in strata and by the way i want to celebrate our community colleges in the same way community colleges are critical critical education platforms what we need is for the highest level of all people to be able to get into all of the opportunities that are out there on a a higher education basis i want to turn back to you and your career you
0: decided medicine wasn't for you and you were going to go into education what drove you was it were you career driven was it money
2: passion power what drove you to pursue that first and foremost i've always been service oriented and i was raised in a home where we performed service our, my whole life when what do i you was, mean by that yeah so real concrete examples um pre-climate change. We had a lot of snow in Providence and Rhode Island. I was sent out as a young child to shovel not just my walkway but the walkways of everyone. I had to click rocks in the street that were causing pitfalls, causing um, breaks and windshields. I was service-driven from literally as, as old as I was to hold a shovel. So I've always been service-driven when, and part of, that was part of my passion around medicine, but ultimately uh, the the second line of interest for me was around diversity. I was raised in a home where I had people from living with me from laos from countries in africa from germany um from japan and so i became passionate about language acquisition and that was when i started realizing from my upbringing in brown in particular which had an incredibly progressive approach to diversity even back in the 80s i started understanding that we needed to provide more services to people who were arriving in this country did you study language in college? I did. I failed my languages in high school. Um, I had an opportunity to go abroad between high school and college and realize that I'm phenomenal at languages, but I learned them by living, by doing, by speaking. And uh, so then I pursued a, a, a minor in French at the time, and since then I've learned Spanish and German fluently. And we're going to take a break. This is The Ballad's dilemma.
0: You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We are speaking with Meg Coyfer of the STEM Alliance. Meg, let's go back to how you got from
2: college into teaching. That's pretty simple. Uh, when I studied at Brown, I did a major called Educational Studies, which does absolutely nothing to certify you as a teacher. But it's a great exploration of the institution of education. But I really wanted to teach. And so on my last, one of the last classes I took was on bilingual education. It was very inspiring to me. I went to that um, educator and I said, that professor, and I said, how do I get into classrooms if I don't have a teaching degree? And she told me about a case in Washington, D.C., a federal case um, against Washington, D.C., where they were not meeting the needs of second language learners. And so they were emergency hiring educators and letting you do your training simultaneously. I moved to D.C., had not a penny, had not a job opportunity in my pocket, and lived on um, spaghetti and cereal and kind of bunking at a friend's place. And by the end of the summer, I had been hired into one of those emergency slots. And what did what were you doing in that job? I was teaching in an inner-city school with a recent influx of uh, newly-arrived immigrants, mostly from Guatemala. And I was the only white educator in the building other than one white educator. I was one of two. And I was representing the needs of this small immigrant population in a building that was all African-American, um, both the, the kids and the educators. It was a very, very powerful experience. But how are you qualified for this? So... As a person, I would tell you that Brown University at its core it teaches you about pedagogy it teaches you about progressive education what is education by in its way that you learn so then there was the influence of my mother who was also an educator she had a stint as a biology teacher and then lastly i was taking classes alongside um, but this was a population that literally wasn't being served at all so i'm not saying that i was the best teacher right off the bat nobody is in their first year but i did actually win a national award um for new teachers in my first year of teaching so i I certainly was meeting certain marks you, you've used the term progressive education or progressive educator what does that mean it's not related to politics it is not related to politics for me what that means at core, at its core is that the educational goals and the pedagogy itself is grounded in the child the learner as being part of setting their learning goals you've talked about being bilingual you weren't at the time, though. So what did you do? Well, at the time, I was bilingual in French. I had become very, very fluent in French doing my minor at, in um, in my university years. So I knew, though, that I could not serve the families because even though I was working with the kids in the classroom, you know, every parent is a child's first teacher. And if I couldn't give skills or even information to the families, then my my ability to impact the lives of the children was going to be limited. So I... You mean in Spanish? In Spanish. Right. Thank you. The, the the parents were Spanish speakers, as were the kids, but I was working on teaching the kids English. So uh, essentially, uh, my third year teaching there, I really realized that I needed to move to a Spanish-speaking country to learn Spanish intensively, that that works for me. And so I ended up pursuing a job to work in the international schools. I had fallen in love, but I told that uh, person, who is now my husband, I said, I really love you. I'm moving to Ecuador. I was <laughs> offered a job. So we were we uh, became engaged and uh, I moved to a loan to Ecuador for a year um and uh he waited and I did what I needed to do and I both taught during the day at an international school and I studied Spanish at night at the Universidad Católica in Quito so, so you
1: were able to come home and say uh Te amo, correct
2: oh I was actually <laughs> fluent when I came yeah. home I really do have this ability and the, here's the best argument somebody said to me the reason I know you're fluent this was my brother-in-law came to visit is because I could talk a taxi driver out of a too high fare so it was like go. you took that right. one That's hands standard. down you're bilingual
1: um, now you could deal with the spanish-speaking yeah. parents who might want to complain about something and uh, you could well and actually more importantly
2: they weren't complaining right, right. like they were they were trying to they understand were grateful. and also there's culturally there's uh, they would actually it would be very rare that they would complain to complain to a teacher because teachers in many not all but many um of the Latin American countries are highly respected. You would never question a teacher right um, but again if we if they are the child's first teacher, we want to bring them along in this conversation. so how does a former teacher and we'll get to the former part in a little bit. <laughs> So a former
0: teacher with a focus on language and reading with little STEM or STEAM experience, in fact, having determined that she wasn't good in math or science. Correct. <laughs> end up founding and running an important nonprofit in that exact space. Yeah, uh,
2: so that's where children come in. Um, I would say my, our oldest uh, child, um, who's now 24, from his very, very early years, he should have been raised by my mother. Um, he was Passionate about STEM from his earliest years, you know whether that was throwing something over a railing and and then comparing different things that you threw over it. And he was under he was basically assessing velocity and gravity from a very very young age. He would come to me with information about the Vassimer rockets at the age of ten. I had no idea how he knew these things. You weren't exposing him to it. Not I, I certainly had never given him a book on the Vassimer rocket, and he didn't have access to internet back in that day. You know he had no computer access, so these things. Are quite honestly, I feel like. He was picking it up via osmosis. So ultimately, um, what I saw was that there was a hole in connecting kids to these disciplines so if you compare it to a sport if you're really passionate about sport there's a way to do it from a young age and there's a way to get better at it there's different leagues advancing in the leagues if you are passionate about an instrument or passionate about theater there's ways to do that from a young age upward in these disciplines there wasn't he needed a mentor he needed classes and when i couldn't find those opportunities i started it in my basement
1: and i just want to ask a question here similar to your family growing up you have many children how many kids do you have?
2: and what are their ages we had five children in seven years um and uh i was very privileged to be able to be home with them during that time period part of your commitment in digital uh, in for the
0: stem alliance has to do with digital equity
2: what is that digital equity is creating equal access to computing devices internet and tech skills or digital literacy skills for all people um, at its core. And essentially, as the pandemic put a strong spotlight on, we saw with children in particular that they did not have equal access to skills or devices or equipment in order to participate in virtual learning. But the truth of the matter is digital um, equity needs to be provided for all people at all ages and all stages of life. And it is the super social determinant of opportunity and success. It runs through everything. Being a banked individual, having access to health care or health information, completely the census, accessing social services. Digital equity is the line that runs through all of our lives. And if you are stuck in an analog existence, you are marginalized.
0: You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We are speaking with Meg Koifer, the STEM Alliance. Meg, I want to go a little further into this digital equity and even digital competence. Does it have the possibility to be sort of the great
2: Equalize, their career and society-wise, uh, there's absolutely no doubt that it is certainly a, um, a, an equity issue, and you need that everybody needs the same platform. So let me give you a really concrete example. Um, there was a study that came out recently that examined the some of the determinants of whether or not someone died, the fatality rates of COVID nineteen. Um, when you controlled for things like socioeconomic status and even um, geography, if you pulled those out, you know those were not the key factors. Whether or not you were in a rural environment, so, do you know what? The single highest determinant was whether or not the individual had internet access hmm. let 's examine that for a minute when we talk about the super social determinant for individuals you we cannot we are running a digital world and you 're asking people to live in a different platform an analog platform when everything is digitally driven so yes, these skills are an absolute equalizer, and they are a right they are things that everybody needs access to. <laughs>
1: You know, having children with a large uh, span of ages, we go through different uh, philosophies on what is important. And there was a huge push for literacy for a decade. This decade seems to be the digital decade where they're realizing you just what you're saying. You cannot compete and be part of this world without these skills. And when we talk about this great equalizer, Did the pandemic kind of accelerate an experience where we are having the capability to educate more children using a digital platform, possibly at a lower price point where we can include more people than was possible in the past?
2: I think there's no doubt that all districts um, you know, across the country have made commitments toward device access for all of their um, kids as well as um, basic kind of core skills being embedded or embedding technology into their education priorities. That, absolutely. But when we talk about the digital divide, we don't want to talk just about kids. Um, there's two points I'd like to make there. Number one, let's talk about kids for a second. Those devices that are being offered, those are what we call loaner devices. Loanership is not the same is ownership so that's not equity while i applaud those ownership programs and we need to continue with that both in schools and in libraries that is different than our digital equity now program which offers ownership to anybody who attends the program but then also our program is working with people of all ages even all the way up to seniors um so elders in our community tell us about what elders need and you know some of them are shut out from this Because they didn't learn it when they were younger. Why do they need to know it now? So two pieces. We know that the COVID pandemic proved the problem of isolation for elders. We are very lucky to live in a world where people are more mobile. People are not necessarily living next to their loved ones who are older. And while that's an opportunity for the person who gets to move away, it leaves that elder alone. And so uh, device access um, ends isolation. We know that. Uh, A couple things for people just to be aware of from our learning curve on the topic of working with elders. Challenges are even the physicality, things like trackpad versus mouse, the notion of touching something and getting it to work in another location, like a cursor on a screen. If you haven't been raised with that knowledge, it's very challenging. Um, If folks are on the show and they have elders and listening, I would advise them very early with their parents to use voice-activated technology, your Echo, your Alexa systems, things like that. You want to start that when your elder is 70, 75, not when they need it. Why do they need it, though? Um, Because ultimately, when they decline, Their skills of using a device are going to decline, and especially because they may not have had that when they were younger. But then there's just literally if they fall in their space and they can call out to their Alexa and ask Alexa to call their daughter. Got it. Got it.
0: Okay, so let's talk motherhood, parenthood, and careers because you did something that maybe was a little unusual in today's world.
2: You stayed home to raise your five children. I was so privileged to be able to do that, and uh, it was exceptional. I will tell you, I think Motherhood, there's a a book that was inspiring to me, and I think the title is something like Motherhood, um, Why the Most Important Profession in the World is the Least Valued. Uh, So when I did wake up and start my career – You know, two things happened for me. Number one, zero regrets being home with my children. And I do believe that a parent is a child's first teacher. And it was an absolute privilege to be that primary teacher in my children's lives for a very extended period. But two things really happened for me. One, I wanted to be a role model for my daughters. We have to examine the fact that wealth is not as available as it was. And the likelihood of my daughters being able to stay home with their children is not high and so i wanted to be able to project and show to them that that balance is possible um but then the uh, you know there is an additional factor um which i kind of had this wake up moment when i was running this nonprofit and not taking a salary it was like i was volu- i was like you know a volunteer on you know steroids right literally working 40 50 60 hours a week not getting paid the wake up moment for me was I was helping an elder in my life and working with her, my great my, – my husband's aunt, caring for her and working with her social security. I had this like – I was like, oh, I should look up mine. I had no social security because I hadn't worked enough years. That was a wake-up moment for me. Can, you, what, can I, you explain to everyone how that works because – People don't it's know a that. People you don't know have that. to have enough years. I believe it's seven years of paychecks. They don't have to be continuous. You have to have seven years of pay quarters. So seven times four is 28. In order to be in the social security system. So I had no social security. You're not even in the system, except was, as a spouse. I was not in the system.
1: So this is something we talk about on The Balanced Dilemma, the number of women who are going to be in poverty at the age
2: of 65, and it goes right to this point. 100%. Nobody had spoken to me about it. I had never even heard of the dilemma.
1: And also, you're doing the unpaid labor of being at home, which is a, a tremendously valuable contribution to the family, but it is unpaid, which can leave you in a bad situation when you're elderly and unable to work more, or in other
2: scenarios that we've discussed, and by the way, it wasn't doing a justice to my nonprofit either because it wasn't putting a value on my salary. Uh, you know, so what? You know, kind of the the what if I got run over by a bus syndrome, right? Well, who was going to lead the STEM Alliance? A with the same passion, but B for free. Nobody. So what did you do about this? So I actually had a, a very dear friend who was a stay at home mom for a period of time, who was a lawyer, who went back to work. Uh, yeah, I was having coffee with her, and she basically talked me into a corner in this wonderful lunch together and it changed my life and I went back to my board at the time and said we need to start putting stakes in the ground I think my first salary with the stem alliance was like ten thousand dollars right but it was basically starting to write grants starting to make requests that included my value and that was something I had never really examined before so I have to ask a question Do you think this would have come out
1: differently if you had been a man running this organization? Or was it just the fact that you were working for something that was a 501c3 and money was tight? How did you evaluate that?
2: Um, I can only say on a personal level, anecdotally, I have never met a man who was working full-time for free that I'm aware of. Well said. So taking that towards your
0: volunteers... Are your volunteers paid, or how do you appreciate the time and the value that they bring to the organization?
2: So, the majority right now, um, we function primarily on paid employees. Obviously, COVID was another factor. We do have uh, a certain base of, of volunteers. So, I would put two pieces together on that topic. One, the discussion of fair wages for nonprofit workers. Um, I think that this is something that needs very high level examination. Nonprofit Westchester, an amazing nonprofit advocacy group for nonprofits in Westchester has done phenomenal research on this and the number of nonprofit workers who are themselves living in poverty or are ALICE asset limited income constrained but employed it's Alice. It's an acronym. The United Way has done a ton of research on this as well. Um, the number of nonprofit workers who are themselves in poverty or at that Alice bare minimum is um, it's wrong. And so I'm very proud to have brought this topic to my board and to have done what we're considering a fair wage reset of the salaries for our employees. For volunteers themselves, I think the responsibility and the obligation is to express to them the value of what they're replacing. So being able to put out that messaging, you know, thanks to you. Your value in doing this is filling this job um, that otherwise would have been a paid position. So I think everybody needs to – it is okay for nonprofits to use market language. Uh, We need to be unapologetic about that. Nonprofits at their core, we are a business that doesn't pay taxes because we are mission-based. We're doing a service. And when you're doing grants,
0: you need to put a dollar value on what – volunteers are providing so that you can receive the money to cover those costs
2: a hundred percent it's basically saying listen this is an in-kind contribution this wouldn't work without these volunteer hours so if you rolled
1: back the clock would you do things any differently in how you did them a- having this epiphany did, what did you, how did you discuss this with your daughters tell us about this
2: how this plays out i think the first and most important thing is uh I wish that there had been more opportunities to just talk about the balance dilemma when I was in college and immediately post-grad. There were no women who were talking to me about that. And whether those be in small kind of affinity groups, whether those be in panels at universities, I actually was pretty upset with my university, which I adore. Um, and I'm a very proud alum of Brown University, but I have not seen those panel discussions. I have not. they bring regularly they bring back people women who are working they have never had a panel of women who stayed home that i'm aware of
1: to raise the issues that you learned that correct, you need to be careful that you don't get stuck in a situation right. where you have no social security.
2: Who are we defining as heroes? When I get my Brown alumni magazine, I'm sorry, Brown, you're the, you know, one of the places <laughs> I've graduated from, but I would imagine this is across many universities, right? When I get that alumni magazine, I have never seen a center page article or front page article on women with college degrees who chose to stay home with their children. All right, so we're
1: saying that that isn't discussed, but... What can be changed or what should be changed to make sure that you are protected as an individual in the event you decide to t- take some time and stay at home?
2: Yeah. So first and foremost, uh, you know, if I had not chosen to stay at home, we would have had to pay somebody to take care of our child. So I should have been earning Social Security while I was staying at home. Right. Right. That, that I, it was a salary. It was an in kind salary. And so I do believe deeply that the government needs to be re examining what we're doing for people. We need policies that honor women who make that choice. You're listening to The Balance Dilemma. We're speaking with
0: Meg Coyfer.
1: And Maura, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners they can find us at TheBalancedDilemma.com, where you can listen to old episodes and sign up for our newsletter, find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. You can also follow us on social media at the Balanced dilemma podcast on facebook and linkedin all episodes are on apple itunes google spotify and you can email us and let us know what you're listening to reading what you like and what you'd like to hear more of at balanced dilemma at gmail.com plenty of ways to
0: reach us meg how do you feel about having ended up in some ways like your mother
2: Oh, I mean, I, I, if I could be anything, if I could be half of what my mother was, I'd be thrilled. Let me put it that way. Um, she was a, 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 an absolute genius and an incredible mother. Um, but she had struggles, right? Um, I mentioned to you that she suffered from alcoholism and and, um, and smoked as kind of the things that helped her relax, right? Because her life was stressful. She was managing quite a bit. By the end of her life, she was managing my dad's entire business and um, a large, remunctious family. And unpaid. And Unpaid, Um, and uh, to to get more deep on that, these are hard stories to tell, right? But because she could not pay for her alcohol, she was buying things that she could get at the supermarket. Right. So this is literally how this goes down and hiding it in the bill. That's the point. Correct. We've heard this before. Exactly. So what I want to say is that um, I feel honored to be half of the educator that she is, to be able to lead an organization with great pride that I believe in, that is bringing science, technology, engineering and math experiences to children all the way through to digital equity initiatives um, and to be fulfilling many of the things that would have would have been a passion for her. And it's kind of a second act for you. It really is, because being a mother came first, uh, but was certainly, as I have repeated many times, right, a mother is the first teacher. So, yeah, it is a second act.
0: But being a mother, stay-at-home mom, as you called it
2: didn't relieve you of the possibility of balance dilemmas did it? Not at all especially when this crossover moment happened so for me I got into building the STEM alliance at a moment where I was feeling a little bit more space my youngest was about 10 years old as I recall and so you do you get a little bit more space a little more breathing room and then you know where did I want to go with that and uh, I do think that a piece of my mom is what led me towards this there's no doubt that the passion of my first child was also big piece of it. So to respond to both of those influences was incredibly important. But I think I would be remiss if I did not say that as I reflect on my professional career, staying at home had a sacrifice, right? My salary, my reputation, my Rolodex, remember that word? My network. Your resume. My resume had to be recreated. My self-worth. I I think it had to be recreated uh, in a new
1: context. So we've discussed here a concept of periodizing your life. You're going to do one thing during one period and maybe you'll do something else in another, but transitions can take time to get into. From the outside looking in, you look like you have navigated a transition. You could now go on to something else, having re- led a major organization that produced uh, you know, not-for-profit funds. Uh, you ran the Tastic with 2,000 people attending. These are kudos to you, and now your resume is vivacious, even though it had a period of time that maybe it had other things that people wouldn't normally put on a resume. Do you see yourself as a person who's done a great
2: pivot? I absolutely do, and and thank you for for seeing it that way. Uh, but I can't say that I did it with intentionality, right? What I I wasn't thinking like, wow, I better build that resume. You know, that may have been percolating in the background as a byproduct. What I did is I went towards something I believed in that I knew I had the skills for. From high school, I've been an organizer. They used to say my best friend Robin and I in high school, um, we were told like, well, we you know everybody thinks the doors don't open until the principal gets here. It's really until Robin and Meg get here to make the morning announcements. So my whole life this has been who i am there was simply a space that opened up that i went into through passion of my children inspiration from my family history and was able to lead and so, my skills so
0: let's just talk about starting the stem alliance it's really an entrepreneurial venture hundred percent
2: how do you do that when you you didn't have business experience None. And you'd given up on math and science. <laughs> no, I, uh, all of those facts true. First of all, I do want to applaud the other founders who are a piece of this. For me personally, in my leadership side of it, several things came together. One We literally started with a $10,000 grant to run a festival that people hoped 500 people would show up to. We ended up getting 2000 It was like, wow, I think we hit a chord here. Seems like we're not the only people sitting in a basement wishing their kids had more access to these opportunities. So when we hit that chord, but we were able to logistically organize something. So, again, those logistical skills I always had. Then to build in, really, leadership skills. So to be able to bring together a team and inspire people at the basis that we're all volunteers. In the beginning years of the STEM Alliance, we were all volunteers. So there were three core volunteers who did everything. Were there men and women or just women? Predominantly women, but we had a board. And my mentor, a man named Chris Templeton, um, a Men, excuse me, Incredible, phenomenal mentor to me. I could not be who I am as a nonprofit leader without Chris's advising. Completely understanding, compassionate, but clear. Um, the type of person where, when you're heading into a meeting with a a, a a big donor, sometimes I still call him and say, "Chris, give me give me the tips again." So we have mentors. But the other thing is being able to admit what you do or don't know. I'm phenomenal with a spreadsheet. I have absolutely no training in business management and strategic planning. We've gone from a $10,000 grant to almost a $1.6 million budget. You know, that takes knowing what you know and then finding the people when you don't know who are going to fill in. And that's what we've done.
1: You used a phrase early on that you did not have robust intelligence. I I bristled a little when you said that, dear. (laughs) But... Don't you think you have robust intelligence? And maybe this is an example that we don't always need to be masters of calculus, but having a brain where you're willing to learn and you might
2: have to take it a little slower... I love that you said that. And thank you for calling that back up because women out there, you do have robust intelligence. I think what it really, really was, right, is that I was not a natural student of the sciences. And that and it was hard for me. And I saw people who were. That does not mean that I couldn't have continued that path with the right support. And by the way, those supports are out there now for women. So if you are a young woman who's in a statistics class or in a pre-calc class, get the support you need because the supports are out there, and I could have pushed through if I had had the correct support. I have no regrets about my pathway. I think, to be honest with you, my skills were more street-based. They were more these logistics and organizing. But
1: this shout-out that you're giving isn't just to women. It's also to maybe the underachieving students. C's get degrees. Now, I don't mean to say that to applaud C's, but there are kids where it's hard for them. They do have to go to community college. They are working. And sometimes you just got to get through to the end. It doesn't mean you won't be able to do it. You just might have to do it on another path.
0: But there have correct. also been recent articles that you can have a career in STEM
2: without a college degree. You
0: can develop the skills otherwise. Is that what you're finding?
2: Well, I think, there. you know, this is everybody's saying there's like an employment hiring crisis out there. And, um, you know, the Great Recession or the, you know, whatever it is. Um, uh, but... I heard someone say the other day, no, there's an employer problem, not an employee problem. And so we need to consider who we're hiring and what we're willing to to do to bring them into our work. So at the STEM Alliance, we hire people all the time who don't have college degrees.
1: Has this changed your view of traditional education? And I'm even referring to a fabulous institution like Brown. If they want to broaden their space and find the diversity... Maybe they need to change how they're
2: looking at things. Yeah, and we saw that in the pandemic, right? We saw people pulling back from SATs and ACT scores and things like that. Um, But there, listen, we could get into this very deeply, but the college admission process is broken. My recommendation is that we call it the lottery that it is. The college admissions process is a lottery. The only mistake we're making is asking people to jump through hoops that they think are actually going to make a difference as to whether or not their name gets pulled. So I I
1: just want to point out a few things. I was at that first STEM task. As was I. And you had things there like welding, okay? I thought that was so cool. And it also teaches children that there is such a broad spectrum of careers you could have. Look, you get to put a face mask on and use a a lighting instrument and melt metal. It was so, it wasn't just limited to computer skills, it also used uh, tactile, artistic, all different types of things that got our children saying, wait, maybe there's another path
2: I could have that would really interest me. 100%, and that is exactly what we believe in at the STEM Alliance. We are trying to put tools in kids' hands and give them a sense of the very many trajectories there are. So, of course, Because this is a balance dilemma, we have to ask you,
0: what does balance mean to you, and can you have it all and all at the same time?
2: So, yes, you can have it all and all at the same time, but the balance is really your responsibility to own, and I would say that that's going to look different for each person. But on the other hand, it's also going to be learned in different ways and stages. I've had a real leveling in my life recently. I have um, one of our children has a very serious substance issue problem. And I'll give you a really concrete example where, you know, as a parent, as a woman, maybe as a parent, maybe both, um, you have this burden of like, my child is calling. I'm in this this interview with with Maura, but I better answer the phone because my child is calling. And we drop everything. And one thing that I've had to learn in the boundaries with this child that we're trying to support in a very specific moment is a that they don't usually call their father right at three in the afternoon or one in the afternoon or nine in the morning right and b that it is okay as a parent to set boundaries around what your needs are and to make sure that your kids are asking you how are you doing today what did you do today? What are you up to? Uh, And creating that balance that we are living beings with passions and interests, and we are going to take an interest in their life when they also come back and take an interest in ours. It goes both ways.
1: And I bet your husband would be happy to take the call if we gave them the opportunity, and that's part of the change. Did your family evolve when you started being consumed with 50, 60 hours worth of work? How did they
2: handle that shift? To be honest with you, I think that's where I'm saying I'm learning. I think I made mistakes about that. So I don't think that I expressed to family well enough, like, hey, I'm working full time now. Meg, can you tell people how they can get in touch with the STEM Alliance before we wrap this up? I would be thrilled. We're at www.thestemalliance.org or info at thestemalliance.org. And you look for volunteers and you look for funds. Volunteers, funds, and partners. So our work, our STEM education and digital equity is brought to people through partnerships.
0: Thank you, Meg. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. I'm I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. Thank you for listening to The Balanced Dilemma.